Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. So I don't know what that thing is Keith always says about fish, but whatever it is, uh, it is absolutely true this morning. We've got some stuff to cover. Last week, Keith, he did a really great job of guiding us through sort of the heart of Acts chapter 5, and we're still in Acts chapter 5 again this morning. In the passage that he covered, Luke gave us another summary of the situation of the new church, and he does this throughout Acts. He gives a summary of what the condition of the community is, or what the condition of the apostles' ministry is. And in this summary, we find that they are now attracting crowds from all around. Their ministry has now expanded outside Jerusalem because people are coming from all over to Jerusalem to see the apostles. They're really starting to get some attention. But as we know, success does not come without serious opposition. Keith talked about how people dared not join the apostles in their work. And why is that? That's because the priests of the Jerusalem temple had already told the apostles to stop. People were afraid of crossing the Sanhedrin. They didn't know what would happen. Everybody knows that something is going to go down, and we see that here. So just to catch us up, verse 16, chapter 5. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And then 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, dot, 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 we'll stop there, All right, so if you read this and you thought right away, of course the high priest is one of the Sadducees. I know that. Why is Luke telling us again? Congratulations, you have officially become a Bible nerd. I will give you your badge on the way out today. If you didn't catch that, that's no big deal. But what Luke is telling us is that the Sadducees are jealous. They're jealous because they've got a lot to lose. The Sadducees were the most powerful party in the Sanhedrin. And when I say the word party, it's a lot like our political parties in Parliament. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish court, and the Sadducees ran the show. They were in charge of Jewish life. But they were only able to do all of this and exercise all of this power because the Romans let them. Now that the apostles are making such a ruckus in Jerusalem, Pilate may well get fed up and decide that the Sadducees aren't doing a very good job of managing things anymore, and then the Sadducees are finished. They, they serve only at Caesar's will. The priests of Israel serve with the permission of Rome. And now that some fishermen in the north are challenging the Sadducees' authority right there in the city in Jerusalem, they're jealous, they're worked up, they're agitated. Worse, everyone loves these fishermen. And so that that is what marks the Sadducees' jealousy. But they also have a lot to be afraid of, as I just said, so they have to act. And here's what they do. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. 
So things are clearly escalating here because last time it was just Peter and John who were arrested and they seemed like they were just detained at the temple. Now all 12 of them have been arrested. But what's more than that is Luke makes sure to tell us that they were put into public prison. This time they go to the Jerusalem city slammer with all of the other criminals because the Sadducees, they want everybody to know about it. They want all of those believers who were too afraid to join the apostles in their ministry to have a reason to be afraid. They need to scare people so that nobody would dare speak the name of Jesus again. But, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And can you even imagine that? You know, one of the things is Luke could hardly give us fewer details about this whole thing. Because you can make a movie script out of this event, right? And we get two sentences. He's essentially just telling us they were all put in jail and then an angel let them out. And that's all we know. The rest is all up to our imaginations. But it is a scene to imagine because they are arrested specifically for preaching in the temple. God frees them and then orders them to do exactly what got them arrested in the first place. You know, angels, they tend to operate as God's messengers. In Hebrew, the word angel means messenger. And this one is no different. God has instructions. God's message is go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The words of this life is an interesting phrase. If we put that on the wall somewhere, people would think we made a grammar mistake or something. It's not something we would normally say. But in this phrase is a suggestion that these words the apostles are preaching by proclaiming Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, they lead to life. The translators of the ESV, they even put a capital L on it. Capital L, life. The truth about Jesus is giving people new life, new birth, and God does not want the apostles to stop. So he sends an angel to take them out of prison and says, get back to work. So we wind up with what is really an absurd situation. The priests are the caretakers of God's temple, and they arrest the apostles. God sets the apostles free and then sends them back to his temple, God's temple, to continue preaching where the priests are supposedly in charge. So then we're left wondering, who is in charge here? Who is actually representing God? Who has authority in this situation? I, I think about it, you know? Like how sick must the spiritual life of Israel be if God is directly intervening to frustrate the plans of his own priests? They are priests of the God of Israel and the God of Israel is stopping them. God is passionately for Israel. His desire is that Jerusalem and all the Jewish nation would hear the words which lead to life. The Messiah is for them and God will not stand by and permit the jealousy of the powerful to rob the ordinary people of salvation. 
Verse 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So we're told before that the angel came to free them at night, but the problem is the temple courts were actually locked up during the night. So the disciples go to those gates and as soon as they're unlocked at daybreak, they get right back to teaching about Jesus. And for them, it looks like this is easy obedience. Can you imagine for them the thrill of obeying God where prison doors are literally opened? And they have this opportunity, God-given, to make fools of the corrupt men who put them there. I know as a kid, right, I always had this impression that obeying God is boring. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who felt that way. It's all about being nice and eating vegetables and all that kind of stuff, right? (laughs) Obey your parents or whatever. I was totally wrong. Because what is boring is obeying my own desires in this predictable, nonstop loop of appetite and disappointment. You get excited about something, you focus on it, and it lets you down. And if that's all you have to live for, that's what's boring, doing what you want to do. There is no better way, and we need to get this message out there so that younger people can hear it, there is no better way to rebel against the world than to follow God's instruction. Because God's stories are better than our stories. And this story is better than our stories. In the end, if the Sadducees thought that they were making a point by publicly arresting the apostles, God is making a way better point by publicly humiliating the Sadducees by setting them free and sending them right back. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Maybe I've talked about this before, but are you familiar with the term dramatic irony? Dramatic irony, it's a a motif in writing and movies. It's when, when we as the readers, we know something that the characters in the story don't know. So we sit there going, oh boy, if only you knew. So we get to enjoy that right here. God's given us a big spoonful of dramatic irony. When the Sadducees show up for work, you know, they've got their Starbucks in hand. They have no idea what has happened during the night. As far as they know, the apostles are still in jail. And when it says they call the council, what they mean is that they're calling an official meeting of the Sanhedrin. This is like calling parliament together. So the rest of the parties are all sending their representatives. And they're all looking forward to another good interrogation. So everything in place they send some of the temple guard to go and get the apostles. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. They can't find them. And what's crazier than that, not only are the apostles not in prison, but all the guards are in place, all the guards are none the wiser, and all the gates are locked. There is no sign that they had left. Yet from the apostles' point of view, which I'm sure Luke had an opportunity to ask them about, every door was opening before them. That's what Luke said. This is how God works. God is awesome. 
Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, no kidding, wondering what this would come to. How did this happen? Where are they? Are we ever going to find them again? You know, one thing to keep in mind is the Sadducees were skeptics. The Sadducees, despite being the priests of Israel, they tended not to believe that God takes direct action in the world. And I mean, we all know people like this who don't really believe God performs miracles. There's a rational explanation for everything. So they do not have religious categories for what has just happened. They're not prepared for this. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. What's so funny about this is we don't know exactly where the Sanhedrin was meeting that day, but there's a chance that they were actually gathered in the portico of the temple. You know, Keith had shown that map. There were all those colonnades on the side, and in in the one big built-up colonnade, they had a place where they often held their court. And if that's true, this would be utterly hilarious because what's happening is somebody runs up, literally points and says, hey, look, they're over there. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And this sounds so familiar. They're afraid to arrest the apostles for the same reason that they were always afraid to arrest Jesus, and they had to do it in the dead of night. They know that the apostles are loved by the crowds. And so the apostles are so well-loved that the temple guards themselves, they think if they arrest the apostles by force, that they'd start a riot and they'd be stoned to death. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In the end, old Caiaphas, he gets his interrogation. We see him interrogating people all the time. I don't know if he ever did any high priestly things. He was obviously a pretty good interrogator. But unfortunately for Caiaphas, he's got to have egg on his face the whole time he's doing this. Because he already looks like a fool after what had happened that morning. Now, are you surprised by anything that isn't here in his line of questioning or his statement? Anything surprise you about that? Exactly. He does not ask how they got out of prison because he knows no matter what the answer is, he'll be even more humiliated. So he doesn't even bring it up. He focuses on the only thing that he has on the apostles. The priest said, stop talking about Jesus. Now everyone in Jerusalem is talking about Jesus and they all are coming to believe that it's the Sanhedrin who killed him, which is funny Why is Caiaphas offended by that? Because he's been plotting this for a long time. He killed him. And you notice this. Caiaphas doesn't even say Jesus' name, right? He says this man, which in their culture, in their context, identifying somebody just saying this man is an insult. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. As always, Peter is again the spokesman. This is essentially the same thing he told them back in chapter four. 
the first time that Peter was arrested. We obey God, we do not obey you. And then Peter continues. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. This is the same message that Peter has been preaching to everyone in Jerusalem since he was filled with the Holy Spirit. You killed Jesus, God raised him. And by implication in this case, you better make yourself right with God and repent before it's too late. Now, we don't usually refer to Jesus as being hanged on a tree, but Peter is actually choosing his words very carefully. And it actually adds a lot of weight to the point that he's making. Because in his situation, he is standing in a room surrounded by some of the greatest Torah scholars who have ever lived in all history. And as soon as he says these words, they would recognize he is quoting Deuteronomy 21. I have the passage right here. Deuteronomy 21, 22, 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, this body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. What Moses is saying is that any man who died by hanging was seen as particularly cursed by God so that his body, if it was left exposed, would defile the land. So after man was hanged, he was to be buried the same day according to the law. This is to say that hanging in Jewish tradition is an exceptionally shameful, impure, and undignified way to die. Already in the first century, Jews were making the connection between the humiliation of Roman crucifixion and this law in the Torah. And the Essenes would say that this law applies to Roman crucifixion. So Peter is saying to the Sanhedrin, you didn't just kill him. You had him die a cursed death. You believed he deserved to die cursed. And Paul even picks up on this thread in his letter to the Galatians. Look at this. This is from Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus took on the curse from the law, from the Torah, and he overcame it. He took on the full weight and curse of God's righteous law, and yet he's the one who always kept God's law. And he died for us who have failed to to stand up to the righteousness of God. Jesus suffered our curse, but the curse could not keep him, so he broke it. This is beautiful stuff. And this is the kind of stuff which the apostles would have been preaching in the temple courtyard. You have not satisfied God, but Jesus did for you. Accept this new life and be forgiven. And though the Sanhedrin hanged Jesus from a tree and cursed him, God had other plans for Jesus. Peter continues, God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior 
to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Peter is saying, you Caiaphas killed him. You Caiaphas cursed him and you left him for the grave. But God raised him to his right hand as both leader and savior. And now Jesus has the full authority of the most high. And look at the why. God did this. God sent his son into the world to suffer and to die, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Peter is telling them that God did all this for the sake of Israel because they are being accused of being a threat to Israel. Do you see how this works? The apostles are no threat to Israel. They are no threat to the temple or to the people of Jerusalem because their message will save them. Jesus will save them. Israel can be right with God through the forgiveness and compassion of God's son who has all authority on heaven and on earth. But we know that the priests and the scribes, they won't listen. They won't accept it. The tragedy here is that Peter says it so clearly. He says repentance is a gift. He's setting it right on the table in front of them and none of them will take it. And he continues... And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The apostles are witnesses of what God has done in Jesus. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was perfect evidence of Jesus' authority. It was a promise kept. But the Holy Spirit is even a witness to their preaching, witness to the truth of Jesus. And what's really cool is Peter has like a five-line sermon here, right in Caiaphas' face. And the whole trinity appears in his little sermon, right? All three parts of the Godhead work differently in order to accomplish this plan. The Father exalts Jesus. The Father is the one who lifted him up. Jesus gives the gift of repentance and forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit then witnesses and confirms all of these things on earth. I like Peter's little sermon. I think it's pretty great. And I'm amazed at how much deep stuff, you know, working with the Holy Spirit, he can pack into a very small space. But the Sanhedrin, they don't like it as much as I do. (laughs) When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. There's no sign of repentance, though God is giving them another chance. How many chances? There's only hatred. And this, maybe it does for you too, but this really reminds me of the Pharaoh dynamic, right? The more undeniable God's involvement appears, the more they harden their hearts against their own God. But then something very interesting happens. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So one of the men in the Sanhedrin stands up and he says, you know, lead them out of the room. Take the apostles out of the room for a second. I don't want them to hear this. Gamaliel is a Pharisee, which sort of means he's he's one of the leaders in the official opposition. You have the Sadducees who run the show and the Pharisees were the next most powerful group. But Gamaliel himself, he's a high profile guy and he's very well respected. Gamaliel is the only rabbi named in Acts. 
And he's actually exceptionally well-loved and known in Jewish tradition. He's, he's a student of the famous Rabbi Hillel. You can't ba- basically walk down a street in Jerusalem without there being some sort of Hillel cafe or something like that. Like, he's one of the major figures of Judaism. And so if you're familiar at all with the Jewish Talmud, the Jewish holy books, which are like this long rabbinical commentaries, Gamaliel is mentioned in that work 28 times. And even today, he's one of Judaism's more important figures. There's, there's an inscription in the, in the Talmud or maybe in the Mishnah that says that when Gamaliel died, like all, propri- all propriety, the beauty of the law died with him. That's how well esteemed he was. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. He's saying, be careful, think about this. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. So in this case, he's giving one of two examples, and we don't know who this Thutis guy is. No records about him survive, but scholars guess that he was maybe a rebel during, during the death of King Herod the Great, because when King Herod the Great died, there was an uprising that came with it. But let's see where Gamaliel's going with this. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. This guy we've actually talked about before. We know a little bit about him. He was a zealot. He was a rebel against Rome, and he took up arms when the Romans tried to put in the census because census means taxes. And he came up before when we were talking about why Galileans have such a bad reputation. Uh, This Judas in particular is partly responsible for that. So Gamaliel has presented everyone with two examples of failed uprisings, and here's his point. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But it is a, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Isn't this ironic? Do you catch his line of argument here? Gamaliel is pretty wise. He's a pretty good rabbi. He says, basically, if the apostles are not on God's side, they'll fail just like everybody else who causes an uprising and they're not on the side of God. But to take a strong action against them now could be a major mistake because what if, just throwing it out there, they may be on God's side. Then he says, then the whole Sanhedrin would be opposing God and this is utterly unthinkable. That could never happen. So let's just let them go. Gamaliel thinks they've got nothing to lose by just letting them free. And of course, again, we have a little bit of dramatic irony, right? We know, as the reader, that they are opposing God. And honestly, if they really wanted to be on God's side, they would have repented. They would have taken this this latest invitation. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. So, having been calmed down, you know, seeing reason, thinking rationally, the Sanhedrin simply has the 12 of them beaten to a pulp and set free. 
Once again, they warned the apostles not to speak in the name of Jesus. I don't know how they imagine that's going to work after everything Peter has said to him thus far, but that's what they do. And there's still a great deal of cruelty here. Because these official beatings by the Sanhedrin, they were very well regulated, they're very predictable, we know what they were like. What they got was probably 39 lashes each on the chest or the back with a strap. And the thing with these beatings from the Sanhedrin, the 39 lashes, is that people often died from blood loss from these beatings. So they've decided not to kill the apostles on the off chance that they're on God's side, but they're still fine beating them. I don't understand how they make these decisions. I I just don't. Maybe they felt like they needed to make an example of the apostles so that people wouldn't be encouraged to join them, you know, if they could barely walk after all of this. But this doesn't look to me like they're leaving them alone. And how do the apostles respond to this? Are they then scared into submission? Was the beating enough to deter them? Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Beatings were meant to be shameful, but because they are beaten for the sake of Jesus, they count it as an honor. It is a privilege and they rejoice They are encouraged. They had joy. And they spent every day from then on doing just as they had done. And we get an extra detail here. They're not just preaching on the Temple Mount now. They're going door to door with the good news. So, okay, that was a lot to cover. And in my opinion, 26 verses is too much to cover like this. It's a lot. And so I had to cut out so many good anecdotes. I had so many bad jokes I had to cut out. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's It's a lot of ground. There's a lot in these passages which we could pull some wisdom from and apply. I'm going to focus on just two things in particular. And this is one, and maybe it jumped out to you as well. While I was preparing, I was really struck by this verse. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is our leader, our savior. He gives repentance. I don't know that I'd ever even thought of it that way before. Repentance is a gift from Jesus. I had a great conversation a few weeks ago with somebody in this church about the fact that that preaching repentance as an essential part of following Jesus, it is kind of rare. It may not have been something you have heard often. It may have not been something you were even taught about when you were baptized. Certainly what I can say is, we don't preach on it as often as the apostles do because Peter's touching on it every single sermon. And I think that's because we misunderstand repentance. And I think, my opinion, pastors avoid repentance because they think it's some sort of onerous self-affliction. Like we're trying to tell people you've always got to be tearing yourselves down because you're just never good enough. You must be repentant. 
Now, when I say the word repentance, does anybody have that idea lurking somewhere in the back of their minds? Or am I off base on this? Yeah, I'm not the only one who feels that way. The strange thing is, we love to preach forgiveness. Because to us, in our ears, that sounds like grace. Jesus does forgive abundantly, and maybe we think if we just hone in on Jesus' forgiveness, uh, repentance will just come naturally. We don't have to touch on that. People will just know to do it. But that's just not right. Because look at this. Peter says, repentance is given by Jesus, and then forgiveness is tacked on. It's the other way around. When people understand repentance, forgiveness comes naturally, and that is grace. And repentance is not about tearing yourself down and never being good enough. Jesus' gift of repentance is the ability to change. Because remember, repentance in Hebrew, it means literally to turn. It's concrete. The gift of repentance is what gives us the strength and the wisdom to remove all of the patterns and beliefs and loyalties in our lives which prevent us from following Jesus. Repentance is Jesus' gift of this life, as the angel called it. It's something we all desire. We always say, we even sang it this morning, a little less of me, a little more of you, right? We all desire to be more like Jesus, and repentance is the vehicle of our transformation. So who among us does not want to be a, more, a new creation? Who among us does not want to be more like Jesus? Who doesn't want to see our friends and our family change to live in the kind of unstoppable joy that the apostles have in this passage, where even a beating can't get them down? That's repentance. It means turning. It means transformation. We trust that when we surrender to Jesus and we're convicted of our sin and we lay our sins at his feet, that he will do the repentant work and rework, refashion, remold our hearts. None of us has the strength to change ourselves. You can spend your whole life savings on self-help books. You will not be a better person. But Jesus is faithful that when we seek him in humility, he gives us repentance. And forgiveness is a consequence of our spiritual rebirth. Repentance is a gift. Coming to the feet of the Savior and laying our sins and our weaknesses and our shortcomings at his feet is a gift. And then it is his gracious will to take our hearts and to make us new. And that's good news. The last thing I want to highlight is this really profound thought from Gamaliel. If, if it is of God, it will not fail. That, that's my summary. That sounds really, really good, doesn't it? If this is from God, there's no way it can fail. But as soon as you start to tug on that thread a little bit, you realize it catches and it gets a little bit complicated. So let me just ask you, you don't have to do a show of hands. Have you ever failed at anything? Have you ever failed at anything, even when you were a Christian? Does that mean that what you failed at was not of God? Do you see where I'm going? So I'll be really frank with you. When I look back 
at different points in my ministry life. When I look back at my, the few years that I had in Glenbush Church, I know that I failed in some ways. And certainly when I look back at my time in Israel and the mission I had when I went there, I know I failed. God redeemed a lot of it, but I know chunks of it were a failure. I can't get away from that. But does that mean that these things were not of God? And I'm sure if you mull on it for yourself a bit, you have your own examples. Things that you did for God that did not go the way that you wanted to or you felt like a failure, does that mean that God was never in it in the first place? Have you ever found yourself asking that question? So Gamaliel's principle, it sounds really good, but I think it's easy to misunderstand because I believe it's still true. The things of God do not fail. But that's not because of us. That's because of God. Look at the apostles' situation. They are the perfect example They were arrested and they were freed, that's true, but then they were detained again, and then they were beaten to a pulp. For a lot of people, when they came stumbling out of the temple complex and they had to been treated for a few days, that looks a lot like failure, doesn't it? And many people would have been asking, if God is on their side, how could God allow this to happen to them? If Peter is going around healing so many people, why can't he help himself? But is that how the apostles see it? It's not at all it. When they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, and every day in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching in Christ Jesus. You see, the the apostles, they understand that it does not depend on them whether or not they are delivered from every harm or every hardship. The apostles understand that they cannot fail, not because they cannot be stopped, or they cannot be beaten, or even that they cannot be killed. They cannot fail because Jesus will not fail. The apostles can be beaten, and eventually they're gonna be kicked out of Jerusalem altogether, and then they're gonna go to the four corners of the earth, and one by one they're going to be murdered. And they still cannot fail because Jesus will not fail. Because the truth of Jesus is irrefutable and his authority and his power are incomparable and the disciples are sure of the fact that he will return. So even though all of the apostles but one will lose their lives and their ministries will end, they cannot fail because Jesus is victorious. And his church, his bride will not end. And here we are standing today because the apostles would not fail because Jesus will not fail. All the glory belongs to the Lord. When our destiny as sons and daughters of God is certain, there's nothing in the world which can stop us. We are victorious. And this is a message we need to hear because we're living in like a year long setback. We have nothing but setbacks. And I don't know about you, but I've had so many grand plans which have come to nothing. But that does not mean that my efforts are not from God or that they're not of God. Because God will not fail. And no matter where this goes or what happens, ultimately Jesus will return. Ultimately everything will be set right. And even the smallest effort and even what we count as failures when we see the Lord face to face will be recognized as giving him honor. So as Christians, everything we do for God is a success. 
Because Jesus is king. Paul wrote this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors in him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are victorious by default. (laughs) That's our setting. We march toward victory even though we struggle. We are victorious because our king is victorious. And one day he will stand before us, glorious, perfect. And we'll be right with him. We won't have to worry about it. Because as repentant followers of Jesus, we are already victors. Whatever setbacks come in this world cannot stop Jesus' victory, and Jesus' victory is our victory. As Paul says, nothing can keep us from the love of God in Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website haguemennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.